The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. The minister's book group books are always something that I want to read, never something that I have read, which is to say that they are surprises to me too. In last month's book, Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown, was a surprise, at least in part. Brown is well known for her book, Emergent Strategies, which by my read offers a philosophy for how to be in the world and be in the work of transformation that's invitational and exciting. I wanted to read Pleasure Activism because I thought it would be about how to be in activism and justice work and how in a way that was pleasurable and with an eye toward that being sustainable because it's pleasurable and I wanted to know how to make it so since so much depends on that work being sustainable. The book, though, by my read, focused mostly on the pleasure piece. There were chapters on nipples and sex work, families that are sex positive with their kids, lots of talk of orgasm and relationships, and lots of body positive exploration of self and others. Besides initially wondering whether my book club participants would think I had lost my mind, I was actually more confused about when and how we were going to get to where I thought she was going to take us, as interesting as all the chapters were. And mostly I thought the book was mismarketed. Mostly, I think the pleasure activism Brown was writing about was about being an activist for our own pleasure and one another's. It is also, though, about how revolutionary that way of living is for us, separately and together. Brown, a queer black woman, is in a lineage of women, especially queer black women, who have staked pleasure as a territory not to be surrendered, but claimed and celebrated. Foremost among them is Audrey Lord who described herself as, quote, a black lesbian mother warrior poet, and whose collection of essays, Sister Outsider, has, among its famous and much repeated and studied essays, the one Brown reaches back to, and that we heard from today in the reading, uses of the erotic, the erotic as power. Lord, it turns out, graduated from the same high school I did, something I think I knew once but had forgotten, and then attended Hunter College and later Columbia working as a librarian, but always from the age of eight on a poet and as Sister Outsider makes clear, also a powerful essayist. The uses of the erotic, <clears throat> as those who have read it know, and as you've heard in the reading today, an example of, it's not an essay about sexuality or sexual power, though that is present in what it's talking about also. Lord casts the erotic as something much bigger, much broader and more encompassing than the 
yes and the wow and the earth-shaking joy of fully expressed sexual exploration and union. She saw the erotic as a force and experience that once we were in touch with, would heal and insist and enliven us to extraordinary lives that would make for a more extraordinary world. Lord sees the erotic as a resource. Within women, she focuses mostly on women. Maybe because in women it has long been vilified and abused and devalued. And that women have, she fears and Brown agrees, come falsely to believe that our strength exists in our suppression of these parts of ourselves, alienation from our feelings or our needs, and what is in fact in all of us a life force that is a superpower, you might say. And it's not just about sexual liberation and satisfaction, though it does tie back to that and to all that empowers a life that is liberated to its own sexual satisfaction. The erotic, when it's something we're connected to, though, Lord thinks, pivots to this much bigger knowing. The erotic, she writes, quote, is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. <clears throat> For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power, in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. She continues, it's never easy to demand the most from ourselves, from our lives, from our work. But to connect to the feeling of being fully alive in what we're engaged to, to ache, you might say, for satisfaction because we've gotten in touch with it, as she points out, that being in touch with deep satisfaction and aliveness becomes this measure by which, against which, we hold up all of our engagements. And it's a standard that is no external standard of judgment and not one that any external standard of judgment can supplant. It's a freedom to our own aliveness, to the beauty and the power of feeling satisfied. That's the power of the erotic writ large. Our erotic knowledge, she writes, empowers us, becomes a lens through which we scrutinize all aspects of our existence, forcing us to evaluate those aspects honestly in terms of their own relative meaning within our lives. And this is a grave responsibility projected from within each of us not to settle for the shoddy, the conventionally expected, nor the merely safe. And as you heard this morning, she says we can find it, whether dancing, building a bookcase, writing a poem, examining an idea. It is this, I think, this notion of the erotic, as Lord paints it big and full, that prompts Adrienne Marie Brown to dive deep into what it means to reconnect to pleasure, 
pleasure as this way to reconnect with body and emotion and spirit and relationship and earth in ways that reconnect to that larger erotic that Lord describes. Brown's book then, one read of it is this gathering from other readers and people living deeply and fully in the world of this journey toward and in and with the pleasurable that we're told to be suspect, suspect of wanting. But Lord tells us we need to know intimately. All week long, I've been singing songs. It happens to me sometimes when I'm thinking deeply about something. I start singing songs, and then only as I realize what I'm singing do I realize it's connected to this topic I'm sitting with. So I found myself singing lines from Janet Jackson's Pleasure Principle all week. I knew I'd been singing it out loud because last night when my husband went out to walk the dog, I heard him singing it, and I know he wouldn't have thought of Janet Jackson's Pleasure Principle unless I was putting the ear worm in his ear. And all week, after last week's amazing service on Sondheim, I kept humming the Sondheim song, Being alive, being alive. It's that one, you remember, that Bobby sings when he doesn't want somebody at first to hold him too close or to know him too well. When he's throwing up clear boundaries that keep him cut off for the interconnection between people but also stands for the cut-offness he has from the depths and demands and yearnings of his own self, I think. And then in the end, sings a desire for that connection as part of being alive, fully alive. It's that cut-off from the part of the self that Mary Oliver, the poet, calls the soft animal of your body in the poem where she tells us to let it love what it loves. We all know what it means to be cut off from the soft animal of our bodies, to be cut off from the depths of our feelings, to shut down the unwelcome whispers and nudgings and needs that we can feel rumbling inside to make them unwelcome things we sometimes feel in the tightness of our chest or that melancholy ache in our belly, all the ways these needs and wants try to speak to us. In fact, in our unpacking together of our anti-racism, anti-oppressive work, I'm beginning to see or sense just what the threads of interlocking oppressions, but also interlocking systems that perpetuate the harm to ourselves and others look like. And part of this interlocking system, I'm increasingly convinced, is everything that would have us shut down in these ways, become insensate, stop feeling all the things that Lord and Brown write about. Shutting down has never served our spirits or bodies or the planet or the wholeness, morality, and progress of the self and the collective well. Shut down your attention to your body and you may well miss the signs of stress, the pain that is a warning signal, 
the needs that are healthy to address, not weak or lazy or self-indulgent to attend to. Shut down your emotional life, and you are also likely to shut down attention to the emotions of others, and in the wake, relationships suffer. Often we're only woken out of such shutdownness when we get a pink slip that says we haven't been paying attention to the emotions and needs of our coworkers, or divorce papers, or get a terrifying call from a school counselor about our child. Shutting down to body, to our emotions, and therefore to others and theirs is never good. We know that. And shutting down to the parts of ourselves, however you yourself name them, spirit, soul, deeper knowing, that's no less dangerous. Depression can be the emotional fever that the body sends, the mind sends, the heart sends when there's that voice inside us, I think, that has yearnings for deeper meaning that's been locked out of the conversation for too long. Despair, I know from personal experience, is the signal flare our spirit sends when it wants our undeniable, inescapable attention for change. Awaken to life and the opposite is true, then. Do you remember the story of when the Buddha started to wander around India shortly after his enlightenment? He encountered several people who recognized him as a very extraordinary being. They asked him, are you a god? No, he replied. Are you the reincarnation of a god? No, he replied. Are you a wizard then? No. Well, are you a man? No. So what are you, they asked, perplexed. The Buddha simply replied, I am awake. Buddha meaning the awakened one. And how to awaken was a foundational piece of what he came back to teach. Mindfulness is powerful in part as a practice because it tries to help us find ways to stay awake, fully present and add attention at the steering wheel of our own lives. I think Audre Lorde and Adrian Marie Brown would say pleasure is similar. Pleasure not merely sensations or sensual good feelings, but a deep attention to feeling and experience that connects us to body and to the bodies of others, to our emotions and to the emotions of others. And spirit, spirit connects us to aliveness and to that sense of satisfaction that Lord and Brown write about. This connection to a life force and an excellence of a radical kind. And why radical? Because precisely 
It is not the kind that asks us or accepts us shutting down. Not to earn more or to endure more, but it demands instead that you and I hold what we do and who and what we choose and how we work to stand in a larger framework of joy and creative life and ask that life by its very nature not abide oppressions and exploitations and all the things that are killing us inside and out that are not satisfying or pleasurable. And that life, of course, I mean, how appropriate is it at the end of the week we have just walked through, rolled through, that life would not find war for territorial expansion acceptable. Life lived in that framework would not abide by nuclear alert. A life by that standard would not kneel on another person's neck for a moment, nor stand by and allow such kneeling To that end, both Lord and Brown ask, as part of their exploration of this dive into the erotic, into a connection to what is pleasurable, they ask again and again, who benefits from oppression? Who profits on or holds power when we shut down and we don't speak up or lean back into one another's lives, or love, or feel, or believe in better? Who are the ones that want humans and women and people of marginalized identity always to feel that pleasure, their own life force and connection to it is suspect? Because no one who believes in wholeness or life in abundance would ask for such self-abnegation and abuse. Pleasure activism in that sense takes us to this place of a kind of revolution. No, takes us to revolution. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? It's not what I was expecting, but it's interesting. And as a side benefit, it does mean that our activism, by the way, would also be embedded in a framework that insisted on making it pleasurable and joyful and irresistible, as Brown says. But that's because everything we do would be fed and held in that framework. I actually think this argument has traction, even as I'm not 100% sure at all of what it would mean to live it. But I find it deeply intellectually appealing, and there is something in me that resonates with what they're getting at. So I invite you into the experiment I have been stepping into. It's a fun one as they go. It doesn't involve horsehair shirts, for instance. <laughs> I invite you to start paying attention to pleasure and think about, as Carmen did, your relationship to it. What were you taught explicitly or just by example and the reactions of those who raised you or by society about pleasure? 
Start paying attention. Pay attention to what gives you pleasure and think please broadly because actually Brown and Lord, as you saw, think broadly too. An hour in the sun reading a book, even though there are dishes in the sink, a midday movie with popcorn and hot chocolate, a nap every day, phone off if you can manage it, your favorite fruit, morning lovemaking, all of it. Ask what gives you pleasure and then give yourself permission to enjoy what you enjoy. Let the soft animal of your body love what it loves, as long as it's not abusive of earth or of others, that it's consensual, of course. Pay attention then to what you feel and think as you step and lean into it. Get curious about your reactions. Where do they come from if you resist at all or when you don't? Who benefits if you start to awaken more deeply to what you feel and need and want? Who's hurt? And then watch what happens, please, as you start to attend to yourself ever more in this way. What happens? What do you think about or feel? What's your energy like? Are you surprised when the world doesn't collapse and you honor your obligations? Maybe you have more energy to serve the world or some small piece of it, like the person right in front of you, or all of them as they parade through your day, one caring interaction at a time. Maybe you become less tolerant of some things you started to think were necessary or normal, and if so, what things? And what things do you wake to? What happens when you become a pleasure activist, as Adrian Marie Brown says? Please write and tell me. I think she's on to something. I think they are. I think Lord was on to something. I think. It is one of the threads that can unwind the interconnections of some of what is binding us and killing us and reconnect us in a web of life-giving, creative, sustaining life. And how lovely would it be if this were true, that pleasure, deep joy and connection could save us. May it be so. Amen. Pleasure is not a word I have used often for very many contexts, let alone for activism even as I typed the word for this reflection, I realized there was a little tinge of, I'm not sure, wrong, undeserving, shameful. Now typing the word sacrifice, I felt a familiar energy field around the heart, a kind of warmth and a feeling of love. Sacrifice was about giving of myself, about putting another's needs before my own, even suffering a little for the well-being of another.
It was a bit startling to recognize that feeling or seeking a sense of pleasure, or at least using the word, seemed like it was leading to a kind of self-indulgence. In 1997, I was living and working in Nicaragua, and I came up to Berkeley for a sabbatical and worked with Raisalea Landman, who Kay Jorgensen used to describe as a Jewish Sufi mystic therapist. I was 35, and I felt compelled to do some inner work to address some things that I kept tripping on and over in my life. After a month or two of working with Reza, I had a dream where I came upon the statue of the Virgin Mary standing outside a church. It was covered in green mildew. In the dream, I reached out and I scraped some of the mildew off with my finger, and I tasted it. I expected it to be bitter, but instead it was surprisingly sweet tasting. When I shared this dream with Raisalea, she reflected back to me that my expectation of taking this time and doing this work on myself was going to be a bitter journey, but rather it was sweet. Maybe I can even say a longed for sweet-tasting pleasure. As I think about the dream, it wasn't the work of wanting to clean off the mildew that strikes me, as much as the fact that it was grown over a statue of the Virgin Mary. The image held up to me as a Catholic woman that I was to emulate, pure, chaste, obedient, immaculate, self-sacrificing, and faithful. Mary was the faithful mother of Jesus, and she immaculately conceived him without sin or pleasure. And later, around the 1800s, the church declared a new doctrine that Mary, too, was conceived without sin. And then, of course, comes the doctrine that we were all born into original sin and we needed to be baptized in order to drive out this sin and become a child of God. We were taught how Mary was faithful and accompanied Jesus in his life and to his death and he was crucified for his activism, for his challenging the religious and civic systems that really were rooted in sin. We were to give our life for Jesus as he gave his life for us. Fasting and prayer and even beating one's body was encouraged. I don't want to dismiss all the teachings that gave form and foundation to my life, but maybe to adjust the lighting a little for it was the parables and stories of the Judeo-Christian scriptures that grounded my life to work for a more just world. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
do justice, love tenderly, and walk humbly. Work so that all may have life and have it to the full. Mary, too, inspired me, a woman who did say yes to life, a woman who bore a great deal, who had a vision of her son being a revolutionary, who would, as she sang in the Magnificat, topple the mighty from their thrones, or who would satisfy the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. A woman who recognized her son's gifts and encouraged and supported him in what he felt he needed to do. I do value and believe in using my life force for the well-being of others, and I also value and believe that we need to be alive and fully full of love in the struggle. I feel the words of Che Guevara who said, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. When I first saw this quote while eating taquitos in the cafe in Nicaragua, I wrote it down and for more than 30 years have kept it on my desk or on my altar. Vanessa, I'm grateful for the opportunity to reflect on pleasure as a part of activism. It actually helped me recognize that I've been a bit, maybe even a lot out of balance in not acknowledging the place, even the requirement of pleasure and joy in the everyday challenging justice-seeking work that we do. I am joyfully reminded that what so often inspired me while living in the barrios of Nicaragua and inspire me now living in the Tenderloin community is seeing people who are living the devastating consequences of racism, inequality, greed-centered capitalism, turn up the music loud and dance with pure pleasure. Thank you.